0: I'm going to have one guest today, Derek Jensen. Now, Derek has become one of the nation's leading voices of cultural dissent. He writes on how civilization is devastating the environment and the natural world and our society's denial of that fact. In sharp contrast to environmental optimists who believe working within the corporate structure will offset the tenuous planetary balance threatened by climate change, Derek advocates a dismantling of civilization, which can include radical dissent, as well as imparting wisdom to our children. He's received many awards for his writings, including The Culture of Make-Believe and the two in-game volumes, uh, What We Leave Behind and How Shall I Live My Life on Liberating the Earth from Civilization. Nice to have you with us, Derek.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Last evening I watched Michael Moore's new film on democracy, a love story. Um, I will give you just a brief overview for those who haven't seen it, and evidently not a lot of people have seen it. It's only grossed about $8 million, and it's been out for six weeks with a lot of publicity. Uh, This is not going to be one of those hits that he's had, like uh, Bowling for Columbine or 9-11. It shows the impact of the down economy on people who live in different parts of America. It shows the impact of uh, closing of plants in uh, in Flint, Michigan, and another uh, plant in Chicago. It shows individuals feeling frustrated and angry that um, they have no options. You see them moving out, and the person says, I don't know where I'm gonna live. And that's a, that is a serious problem that the mainstream media has simply not focused on. And then later, he has a few people on to talk about how we got into this myth and a brief visit to Wall Street to try to explain the contradictions. He gives Barack Obama a big pass on being uh, in any way responsible for the mess brand. Uh, and though he does cite that he received about $1 million from Goldman Sachs. At the end of the film, you see him uh, walking around some of the buildings on Wall Street and putting up a a crime scene duct tape, as if to say, you know, these people are criminals and don't go into this building. It's a crime scene. What the film lacked, in my opinion, was a really in-depth understanding of all the component pieces, not at all was mentioned about the Glass-Steagall Act under the Clinton administration being dismantled, which was the one protection that would keep the uh, banks on Wall Street from becoming, uh, well, let's say, um, casino capitalist banks. Enormous risks, enormous rewards, but then there was n- virtually no risk, at one point only enormous rewards, because they were no longer interested in, building a sustainable America, building factories, helping support small businesses and people with home-based businesses. There was no longer this notion that uh, of a small savings loan. It was all about the, the gigantic institutions that were too big to fail and uh, how many of those people work at Goldman Sachs later went over to take over the Treasury Department. There wasn't even a mention of the Federal Reserve, only a shot of, of uh, the former head of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, but no real understanding of how we got into this mess of having zero interest. So people could uh, borrow 30, 50, 100 times against a dollar investment at zero interest. There was no downside. And so the the Wall Street wasn't even discussed about how much money Wall Street makes. And the fact that Wall Street does not in any way, shape, or form help mainstream. It doesn't help uh, the people, the average American. Not today. It's just out for itself. So bailing it out made no sense, but there were no ethicists in the film, there were no philosophers in the film to discuss that we should have allowed all these banks to fail. There would not have been a financial meltdown. There would have been a legitimate correction, in my opinion, where the completely inflated value of stocks up, at, uh, up into the uh, uh, 13,000, 14,000, that would have come down to about 5,000, which is the actual value of Wall Street. All this was simply ne- neglected. Now, I'm doing a major film, a very scholarly film, and a very historically accurate film on how we got into this mess. And, and I'm doing it as a puzzle, taking each piece of the puzzle and putting it into place, and then describing it, understanding it, what the problems and what the solutions are. At the end of it, Michael simply says, you know, uh, uh, join me, and, and uh, well, join you in what? You know, where are the guidelines? Where is a real good program that we can start implementing? Clearly, with the majority of the people in Congress being told, I don't want the stimulus package, and then they pass the stimulus package, and we don't want in Iraq, and they continue to keep us in Iraq, and we don't want our freedoms abrogated, and they take away of our freedoms, the politicians are not going to be the ones in who help save America. In fact, they are the problem. With very few exceptions, they are the ones who got us into this mess, and the Democrats, along with the Republicans, are now keeping us in this mess. So there was no discussion of a third party, like an independent party, of true progressives. There was no discussion about what you could do to, um, let's say if you're unemployed or you're losing your home, what can you actually do? What steps can you take so you just don't fall into a black hole? None of that was discussed. So uh, in my opinion, it, it, the, the movie was good and that it at least brought people's attention to the issue, but these are all already issues that we're aware of, and if anyone who is more progressive mine... Would already know all the points and a lot more that weren't even discussed would already be known. So I don't think that it's going to offer anything meaningful to causing us to have a shift in consciousness. Now that said, not a mention that we don't have sustainable lives, we don't have sustainable relationships, we have lost sustainable health. The vast majority of people in America today are sick, angry, they don't know what to do with their anger. There was this kind of feeling in the movie that gee whiz, if, if Michael brings us all these truths that there will be a rebellion, people will stand up, but that's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because of the theme that he said, well, the average American wants what the rich have. It's really not true. The average American does not want the responsibility and uh, they would burn out if they tried to push themselves as aggressively. They're not dynamic energies. The average person is a very supportive, a very cooperative team player. They're tribal. They like family. They, they like simple things, whereas the people who are generally the most successful are the ones who don't care about simple things. They, they don't have time for simple conversations. They're bored with life. There must be constant new and distracting stimulation. Uh, it is not making money any longer to the rich and super rich. It's important at all. It's when so many other people have as much money as you have, then no longer do you have bragging rights. So you have to find some way to make yourself seem more significant. Hence, you don't become rich. You become powerful and rich. means you're policymaker. People seek you out to say, you is wise, sage. We're not going to question how you made your money. We're not going to question how many people suffer because of how you made your money. It's just that if you made all this money, we need you to give us your advice like a Donald Trump. There was no mention of what we have done to the environment, what we have done to cause suffering in other countries and other people, what the free market enterprise has actually engaged in. There was not even a mention of the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund or the World Trade Organization or NAFTA or GATT, nothing at all. No mention of genetic engineering the fact that we're running out of water, that we have states, 16 separate states in America, that the future is not sustainable no matter what we do, including California. No mention that there is a small and growing movement back towards the land and back towards a simpler, more authentic way of living. No mention that at all. So I give you that as background because I want you to take your time now and to tell us what you see as the problems, what you see as the real solutions, because I see no real solutions of any kind for anything at all on any level from any any paradigm that the government of the United States is capable of handling, especially since their idea of handling a problem is to privatize it and outsource it to some corporation that will make an astronomical profit and give crappy services, no matter what it is. And that's what they've done with the environment and everything else. So we have to do something and we better start being realistic because we're in denial, we're in avoidance phase, we want to turn our backs and walk away the moment a serious conversation of meaningfulness happens anywhere. We are super engaged, virtually addicted, mainstream addiction, hardline addiction to trivia. Things that don't matter, we care about. Things that do matter, we don't want to know about. Now, those are my own personal and subjective of feelings. The form is yours now, Derek, to take us through what you see through your eyes, the problem and the solution.
1: Um, well, gosh, there's a lot of material there to, to, to cover, and I'll just there Quite a few things I was thinking as you were speaking. One of them is that um, there's this great line that Eduardo Galeano quotes in one of his books by one of the Brazilian generals in, I believe, the 1960s, when someone asked him how the economy was doing. He said, the economy is doing very well, the people not so well. And I've been seeing a lot of uh, articles lately about how the recovery is, is here. The depression, the recession's over. Of course, not depression. The recession's over. Yay! And of course, unemployment's going to continue to go up. And <clears throat> it raises the question: What is the economy for? And who is the economy for? And that, and that leads to the question, of course, of who who is the government for, and what is the government for? That. One of there are a lot of lies that we live by and when we were briefly on the phone a couple of hours ago um, I mentioned a really fundamental lie that, that this culture is based on which is the notion that the world consists of resources to be exploited, as opposed to other beings and in a relationship with and we can talk about that but and that's, that's a huge foundational lie of this culture um, but but there's one I want to talk about right now having to do with, you know, you mentioned government a bunch of times. You mentioned NAFTA and GAT and all that. And one of the things that many of us acknowledge in our private lives, in our private thoughts, but we don't talk about so much in public is the fact that we don't live in a democracy. And we pretend we live in a democracy, but but we know we don't. I mean, I asked people all over the country. I've asked this for years, for decades now. Um, do you believe that the government takes better care of corporations or human beings? And everybody laughs because it's a stupid question. I mean, of course we know that it takes better care of corporations, which which don't even actually exist. They're legal fictions. And I was on a panel a couple of years ago with um, Bandana Shiva and uh, Kathy Pedler, and then this this. Wonderful, amazing nun whose, whose name I never can remember, and the everybody up on the, and the, the nun has done this great anti-war work, and everybody on the panel understood that we don't live in a democracy. And a little footnote here that people used to laugh a lot in the 1980s and 1970s because the Soviet Politburo was made up of what you know 98% or 99% communist party members. Oh ho ho! You know, as a phony democracy, but how many members of the U.S. Congress and I mean, House representatives and Senate are made up of capitalist party members? You know, suddenly we're not laughing quite so hard anymore. It's it's a it's a wonderful. I'm not the first person to comment that it's a two-party, one-party system. And anyway, so so we everybody in the panel understands we don't live in democracy, and everybody in the audience understands we don't live in democracy. And the the nun sitting to my left was was talking about her great. Anti-war work, trying to you know, to 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 halt the invasion of Iraq, and I suddenly turned to her, and I said, "So, how would your how would your work be different if you fully internalized the understanding that we don't live in a democracy? What would you do to stop the war if you fully internalized that understanding?" And she turned to me and she said, "I have no idea. That's a great question, and that's that's a problem that a lot of us act." As though we do live in a democracy, that that ultimately, you know, you'll you'll hear some some uh, you know some account of some new horror that the that the government is perpetrating, and you know whether it's 90% of the large fish in the oceans are gone, or there's six to ten times as much plastic as there is phytoplankton in, in parts of the ocean, and. There are, there's dioxin in every mother's breast milk on the planet. And we then, after we hear of these horrors, what we're always, what we're always told to do next is to contact our representative. Well, it's not my representative. It's, the, it's Pacific Lumber's representative. It's Sierra Pacific's representative. It's Monsanto's representative. And there are individuals who do really good work. Um, there's a. I had a friend when I lived in Spokane, Washington, who was a. Um, her heart was really great, and she is a state senator now. And I know that she is um, not corruptible. And so there are individuals, but on the whole, the system is set up to serve commerce. The system is not set up to serve sustainability. And. It's like I was doing a talk down in um, New Mexico. I was doing a benefit for this uh, this organization that is attempting to stop yet another toxic waste site from going in in another community of poor um, Chicanos, Chicanos, and Chicanas, and the uh, the police were consistently arresting the protesters, and they were enforcing the dictates of distant governments and distant states I'm sorry, distant corporations and I at one point in the evening I I said to the people in the audience so what would happen if the police instead of enforcing the dictates of these distant corporations what if they instead were actually serving the community and what if the police were enforcing cancer free zones what if the police were enforcing clear-cut free zones or dam free zones or or rape free zones for that matter and we all recognize that that's not, that's not really the function of the police. I mean, my place has been getting burglarized a lot lately. And I, I went to the cops, of course, and that's, that's what we do when we get burglarized. And I got a note from a, a police officer in Chicago a couple of years ago, several years ago, who was reading my book, Endgame. And he said, you know, I think that you're putting too much blame on the police, which is not really true. I don't actually blame police that much, but the point is that he said, you know, why is it that he said, police, our job is to protect people from sociopaths, and that's what we do. And I wrote back and said, yeah, I think that's a really important thing to do, but how come you protect us primarily from the poor sociopaths? Why don't you protect us from the rich sociopaths who run corporations? And then I also said, why is it that whenever there's a strike, why is it that the police come in to bring the strikers to terms? Why don't they come in and force the capitalists to terms? It's like the next time there's some sort of anti-globalization protests, Why don't the cops turn around and start shooting at the uh, WTO representatives? Because they have much more in, in interest in class interest with us than they do with them. And I didn't. I didn't get a response back from him. And
0: <laughs> wonder and, why.
1: And part of the problem. This is one of those. Um, those. 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 Those places we have blinders once again. Is that. Um, We somehow end up conflating what is legal, what is the law, with what is moral. And there are many laws which are moral. I I fully approve of laws against rape, for example. i got no problem with strictures of one sort or another against rape. In fact, I think they should be enforced. But um, just because the government passes a law that says it's okay to... um, Put certain people into concentration camps. That doesn't make it okay. Or the law, or the government passes laws saying it's okay to um, force people of certain colors to have passes, apartheid passes, before they can go anywhere. And before we plant at those at those notions, we should also recognize in the United States about one third of all African American males from the ages of 18 and 35 are under, under so-called criminal justice supervision. And that's a scale that KKK can only dream of. So I know I'm going all over the place with this, but those are just a few of the things I was thinking, and they all come back to I think we really need to question the, um, the function of both the economy. And, and we hear some talking head on the, on the television saying, so we want the U.S. economy to grow. Well, do we want the U.S. economy to grow? Do we really want the U.S. economy to exist? What's the function of the U.S. economy? I think those are questions we really need to be asking.
0: I don't believe that we can talk about a U.S. economy. There is no U.S. economy. That's a myth. <clears throat> you have multiple economies. The economy, if you're trading just in derivatives and credit default swaps and, and uh, very exotic uh, securities, uh, for example, um, uh, oh, you could take water, oil, gas, food, and those are tradable commodities. You can, you can manipulate those. You can play heavy in them. You can bet them going up or going down. That's, that's the whole economy. People make hundreds of billions of dollars a year in that economy. When, ga- when oil was $47 a barrel and it went to $147 a barrel, it had nothing in the world to do with supply and demand. In fact, to the contrary, supply had actually been reduced by 1%. So therefore, the cost of a barrel of oil should have come down. Less demand, less cost for that item. So that meant that every time we had a barrel of oil sold, someone was making about $100 profit. turns out these were people from uh, Citicorp and uh, Goldman Sachs. They were manipulating the commodities market. Were they reprimanded? No. Were the personal names of those people responsible uh, brought forward? No. Was there any lectures about... How in the world could you make money off oil futures when that meant that the price of oil was artificially inflated so there'd be people who wouldn't be able to heat their home this year in the winter? Or people couldn't make a a trip that they would otherwise make. Uh, They didn't care. So we we can't even bring ourselves as a society to hold people responsible at even a moral level, forget legal level, for how they make their money. And one of the classic examples, I just saw the list of people who been spending time in the White House, and one was George Soros. I think three or four times. Now, Soros made his money trading in currencies. And when he shorted the ruple, over 100 million Russians suffered enormous financial privations. When he did the same thing with the peso, Goldman Sachs came in and bailed out. Reuben bailed out his... Uh, a former, when he was Secretary of the Treasury under Clinton, he bailed out all of the people who had taken strong positions in that currency so they wouldn't be hurt. So the Secretary of the Treasury was not working on behalf of the people in Mexico or the average American. He was working on behalf of the people who had taken positions and didn't want those people to lose their position. Hence, we bailed them out. I think it was 50, 30 to $50 billion we guaranteed. This happens all the time. And yet these are the people who will then go and fund left-leaning, Uh, radio stations, or liberal causes, and suddenly they're a hero on the left. Similarly, on the right, you have Henry Kravitz, you have uh, Silverstone, you have uh, Mr. Black of the Apollo Group, people who are leaned towards the Republican side, conservative side, who've made massive amounts of money doing the same thing as George Soros, and, and even worse, taking over American corporations so you can load the corporation up with debt and then strip off its assets and cause union contracts to be canceled, cause people to lose their job, and yet you have a billion, 10 billion, 15 billion dollars, why would you need to have someone lose their job? What does it mean to you to make an extra dollar on a deal? So it's clearly not about the money, it's about a deficiency. These people are deficient. If you can't be happy with a billion dollars, then two billion is not going to make you happy. You're just deficient. But we don't look at the fact and say, these people are deficient in something and they should get their act together because they're dangerous to society. Because when you give people like Bill Gates and Bill Clinton and all these other people, um, Ellison from Oracle, you give them free range to be considered living gods where no one ever says no, where they're always given preferential treatment, then you're not aware that these are just human beings. All who have had insights that have helped people, all who've had uh, predilections that have hurt people. And we can't even be honest about that these people shouldn't be the ones guiding us because there's no spiritual um, extension in any of them. It's all about money. It's all about power. It's all about fame. So I'd like for you to take this now and share with us the idea that we have cults of personality that never look at the consequences of how people make their money where they live, the consequences of living there, the consequences of taking risks that are needless and foolish, the consequences of never asking themselves, where's my food come from? Where's my water come from? What happens if I ride this snowmobile across this area or ride this dune buggy across this uh, part of the desert? What happens? They never care And that's our entire society with few exceptions. I figure about 5% of the American population are living consciously and actually care about the choices they make and the consequence of those choices to nature and animals and and the wilderness and each other. That means 95% don't care, don't want to know, actually will be angry with you, uh, Derek, Jensen, and myself, if we should remind them that, hey, friend, you know, do we need a law to say you shouldn't litter? Shouldn't you just not litter? It's it interesting. Uh, I was in London, and I'm walking down the street, and in front of me, uh, some guy uh, threw uh, debris on the street. I think it was a cigarette pack that was empty. I had never seen this before. About six people stopped him, physically stopped him, and says, "Where do you think you're at? Does this look like a garbage street? We live here. This is our street." respect it or go back wherever you came from. And they were angry. And this guy, you know, went over and picked it up and threw it in a garbage can. And I'm thinking, wow. I mean, the United States, you could beat someone half to death and people would walk by it. We just saw in Italy where a guy calmly walks up and shoots a guy in the back and then shoots him in the head. There are six people standing there. Nobody sees anything. They don't want to see it. They don't want to know about it. It's Naples, Italy. It's is entirely 100%, 1,000%, 1, 1,000,000% 1, corrupt in Italy, and we all know that. It's like trying to find an honest politician in Mexico or in Iraq or Afghanistan, in fact, trying to find an honest politician. We know all these truths. We're not stupid. Why do we act stupid? Why do we act indifferent? Why do we act as if we don't care? As long as it's not us getting nailed, why do we care that anybody else does, that indigenous tribes are, that kids are dying, that there are 50 million hungry Americans tonight, uh, 12 million children are going to go to bed hungry tonight, that there are 100 million poor people, that that over 6 million people don't know where to live, uh, 20 million people don't have jobs? We don't care because you don't see any protest. You see no protest. You see nobody protesting in the American middle class, in the upper middle class, the wealthy class. When was the last time you saw Bill Clinton or Bill Gates join a protest against anything? Can you name me, Derek? Can you name me any news anchor that actually took off the camera and microphone and says, you know something, this is important to show some support, some solidarity. Let's, let's support this cause. Well, can you not. name me the journalist?
1: <laughs> I can name some... Uh uh, right wing propagandists who have done that against healthcare.
0: Yeah. Um, but that's politically motivated and that is not helping a common cause oh, of, course, of sustainability. Absolutely. It's not humanistic and it's not spiritual. It is purely a political machination and that isn't relevant.
1: Oh, of course, of course. Um, a couple of things. I think that one of the reasons that. Uh, Well, there's a few things. One of the things I think is very important for us to recognize is that um, this culture itself is, has the characteristics of a sociopath. And it perceives others as objects. It doesn't have empathy. Um, it perceives others only how they can be useful. I mean, every article you read about the extirpation of some species always have to talk about that species economic value. The species doesn't exist for its own sake. Salmon, it's only bad they're going extinct according to all the reports we read in the mainstream media only because of their economic value. And um, there's, once again, no empathy, no perception of the other's existence. And part of the problem is that um, the anthropologist Ruth Benedict tried to figure out why some cultures are good, to use her word, and some are not good. Some of them are very peaceful. Um, The people are fairly happy. Women are treated well. Children are treated well. In other cultures, um, women are treated poorly. Children are treated poorly. A lot of war, a lot of competition. People are generally not very happy. And what she found was one simple rule, and it's the understanding that humans are both... um, selfish and altruistic, that we are both self-interested and we are also social creatures. And what the good cultures do is recognize that those are not actually polar opposites, but what you do is you praise and reward behavior that benefits the group as a whole and you disallow or you shame behavior that benefits the individual at the expense of the group. So if I go gathering and I gather a bunch of huckleberries and I keep them all for myself, everybody in the village will, um, will tell me what a horrible person I am. That's just that's unthinkable. On the other hand, if I go get them and then I share them with everybody, everyone praises me for that. And it all comes down, Ruth Benedict found, it all comes down to how a culture handles wealth. If it handles which, through what she called a siphon system, whereby wealth is constantly siphoned from rich to poor, then everybody in the community is going to be secure. And what you're building as you... Bill, as you, as you have any sort of economic exchange, what you're building actually is relationships. And if, on the other hand, you reward benef- behavior that benefits the individual at the expense of the group, what you're going to get is a bunch of selfish um, monads who um, are not in relationship. And that's exactly what we have in this culture. The fact that we know Bill Gates's name is part of the problem because what we should the way that a functioning, healthy community works is that you disallow behavior that benefits the individual at the expense of the group. You don't reward it. And then there's another problem. You talk about how, you know, why are people not not um, taking to the streets or protesting or, or, or for that matter, why are people not dismantling the oil infrastructure that is killing the entire planet at this point? And for that, I go back to Ardie Lang, who was quite an abusive jerk himself, but he wrote some brilliant stuff. And one of the things he wrote that was really brilliant was there are three rules of a dysfunctional family, which are also three rules of a dysfunctional culture. And rule A is don't. Rule A one is rule A does not exist. And rule A two is never discuss the existence or non existence of rules A, A one, or A two. So what this means within the context of a of an abusive family is you can talk about anything you want in the world Except for the abuse that you have to pretend isn't happening, and then you have to—you can't talk about the fact that you're not talking about the fact that you're not talking about the abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And in in a larger dysfunctional culture, you know, we can talk about all the trivia that you mentioned. We can talk about Brad and Angelina. We can talk about the fact that the New York Yankees are three to two over the Phillies, and and gosh, is Cole Hamill going to be able to have a good game, and who's going to pitch Game Six? We can talk about all that stuff until we just die but we can't talk about the corporations are killing the planet we can't talk about the fact that the social reward systems for this entire culture are messed up we can't talk about the fact that this culture is inherently unsustainable going back for six thousand years we can't talk about the fact that this culture destroys every indigenous culture it encounters we can't talk about the fact that twenty five the gold standard study is that twenty five percent of all women in this culture are raped in their lifetime and another nineteen percent fend off rape attempts and the women I know say those figures are low but if we just accept those figures and we go with just for sort of a quick and dirty um, um, math on this, that if there's 7 billion people on the planet, 3.5 billion are women, and if 25% have been raped, that's about 900 million. And let's go ahead just to be safe and drop it to 700 million. That's more than, than people killed in the Holocaust. It's more than people killed in the witch burnings. That's more than were killed in the, in the African slave trade. And that, that, that's are who are alive right now. But we don't talk about that either. And I want to go one more direction. I know I'm jumping all over, but no, I think No, you're doing fine.
0: You're giving us Which, pieces of a puzzle.
1: Well, thank you. And I'm thinking about what you said about the guy who dropped the, um, the litter. And I have a friend who used to run the battered women's program for the state of New York. And one of the things she does is she asks every man she sees, what will it take for men to stop beating on women? And she's relentless. You know, you get in a taxi with this woman, she asks the taxi driver. You get on the subway, she asks the man on the subway. She's amazing. And her answer for this is, yeah, women, women have to do their work too, but what, one of the things it will take for men to stop beating on women is for men to, um, to, to not, for men to stop it, and one of the ways for men to stop it is through social pressure. I heard you call your girlfriend a bitch, so I'm not going to play basketball with you. You, know? you beat up your girlfriend, so I'm not going to talk to you until I hear an apology, until I know it's not happening again. And we can apply the same thing to, to all sorts of other behaviors too. I mean, for crying out loud, um, you know, a lot of generals are considered war heroes. But the truth is that if the Nuremberg principles were applied to the top US generals and the top US politicians, they would suffer the same fate as the Nazi war criminals because they've waged offensive and illegal war, they've countenanced torture. They've committed crimes against humanity. They've committed they've committed war crimes, and um, but they're considered um, untouchable. And un if you uh, if you say that um, if you don't praise them, then you're committing blasphemy. You're going back to the R.D. Lang's three rules of a dysfunctional cult- family or culture, and that's one of the things I think we need to do. I mean. This is, this is not a solution to the larger problems of this culture of killing the planet, but it's one of the first things we need to do. If the first rule of a dysfunctional family is don't, then the first rule of breaking that is to start speaking out openly and honestly. It's like we always hear we're supposed to speak truth to power, and I don't remember who it was who said that he doesn't believe in speaking truth to power because those in power don't care anyway. What he believes in doing is speaking truth about power. And I think that that's desperately important. It's like a lot of my indigenous friends say to me, that the first and most important step we have to take is that we need to decolonize our hearts and minds, that we need to, or to take it away, a doctor friend of mine says, the first step toward cure is proper diagnosis. And so we need to start speaking out against against capitalism itself. I mean, it's it's insane. You're talking about all these derivatives, and the derivatives are horrible. I don't disagree with you at all. That's that's all really great analysis you're doing. But in addition, let's talk about the notion of owning food or owning water. It's absolutely extraordinary to me that someone can can pollute a river and then cause someone else to buy water, or they can destroy the salmon and then cause someone to go to the grocery store. There was a eighteen thirties pro-slavery philosopher was writing to his abolitionist buddy up in the north who was, was a capitalist abolitionist and the, the slave-owning the, slave pro, the pro-slavery philosopher said you know we would give up our slaves in a heartbeat if we could arrange land ownership conditions so that it was in our financial interest and there are land ownership conditions in which it's in the capitalist best interest to own slaves or not own slaves and it's very simple if there's a lot of land and not many people then that means that people have access to land, which means they have access to food, clothing, and shelter, which means the only way you can get them to work for you is the point of a gun. If, on the other hand, you can get a lot of people in not much land, that means they have access. They don't have access to land, which means they don't have access to food, clothing, and shelter, which means they don't have access to self-sufficiency, which means they have to go to work for you. And so, the my point is that natural foodstuffs also cannot. Um, cannot survive the logic of capitalism because salmon have to go because why would I go down to the grocery store to buy something if I can just go to the stream here nearby? And this is not just true for salmon. it's true for, for vegetables as well. I mean for, for vegetation as well. And, and that's another thing. It's even worse than this because it's not like I'm buying food from a neighbor. I did because I belong to a CSA here but um, in general, I mean what are the numbers? I'm sure you know, know these numbers better than I do what is it, four corporations control 90% of the grain market? Um, I don't know if those numbers are precise, but it's somewhere in there. And it's the same for the other markets, too, that it ends up that, you know, while I'm buying food, I'm actually paying ADM, Cargill, these distant corporations. That's an absolutely insane way to live. And it's... it's.
0: Let me give you an example of this, oh great, Derek. please. When I was growing up, I had a fondness for the farm. And my uh, parents had lived on an Aunt Myrtle's farm down in, uh, right across the river in West Virginia uh, from Parkersburg, uh, Little Hawking, Ohio. And this, I'm going to guess, was about a 160 acre farm. And at one point, about 30 people during the Depression for about 10 years lived on that farm. And they were poor, but they owed nothing, and they made everything. They had sheep that they sheared for their wool. Uh, they, uh, my my aunt, a great aunt, was a vegetarian, thin, strong, deterministic, uh, very dynamic energy. And um, I remember visiting it, and all I could see was beautiful apple orchards she must have had 50 variety of apples. Then she had nut trees. She also had uh, at least seven different fields of grains. She also had in a barn that was immaculately clean, she had barrels. And these are those old 55-gallon big wooden barrels. And, uh, And they were packed with different types of dried fruits. And she had a root cellar about seven, eight feet underground, all bricked. And she had... Wooden baskets with uh, rutabaga and karabi and uh, parsnips, and persim uh, uh, and um, uh, not persimmons. Um, uh, let's see, there was sweet potatoes and potatoes. All of the uh, uh, dried cold that stayed about 55 degrees, of produce. She also had uh, items in the ground that were never taken out unless it was needed, and uh, she had a cheese barn where she made cheese. Uh, she had herbs hanging in the top of the uh, barn, and I and it was interesting because they were dried, and then she'd put them in bags and label them. And there were hundreds of them. They were all culinary and, and medicinal herbs, and people would come around and say, "Well, I need this?" And, I, and she'd go in there and she'd bring them out a bag of herbs, give them to them. And I never saw her sell anything. Everything was bartered. Everything was traded. And um, and she didn't have the time to do the weaving. So someone would always bring over fresh quilts, and in return, they'd get food. Now, I guesstimated, and again, I was a kid, so I don't know exactly, but I'm going to guesstimate that she was growing at any given time and and drying and storing about 300 different types of food products. I know that she had at least 40 different types of fruit, and she did this all herself. She directed it. She, I remember her being up in an apple tree shaking apples when she was about 85, 88 years old, mm-hmm. and I'm a kid underneath and those apples. and I'm thinking, "How is she doing that? You know People 80, some years old, almost 90 years old shouldn't be up in an apple tree. I'm a kid, I, you know, what did I know? And it was interesting because in her home nobody could smoke, or nobody could drink, and nobody was overweight, and people were healthy, and they had to get up at four uh, o'clock in the morning and go out and milk the cows and and do their chores. There had to be time each day set aside for reading religious scripture. There had to be time each day to go and help the poor. Uh, And I'm thinking, wow, when she died, no one in my extended family wanted anything to do with her property or the lifestyle. And what was interesting is just across the road from her, was a farm about the same size. It had been around for over 100 years that they did it just the opposite. They only had one crop, corn. And they got so much per bushel for their corn. They grew it once a year. The rest of the year, their land was fallow. And so therefore, they didn't have to do all this. But they also had to go to the store to buy their uh, eggs and buy their bread and buy their milk and buy their salad greens They were completely dependent upon uh, the extended commerce because they chose not to be self-sufficient. And and throughout my life, I would always appreciate the idea that here was this little, very strong-willed, spry lady who didn't need anyone to tell her how to live, and she didn't care about anybody else. She never had a television. Um, She had a radio, but no television. But I never saw a person pack as much life into 24 hours. And then I would go up to my in-laws on, on Sundays and with my nephews and nieces. And our family would play canasta after Sunday uh, meal after church. And they would sit there and smoke. And they'd drink coffee and eat sugared desserts. And all of them ended up with either diabetes or heart disease or cancer. None of them lived a long life. Most died in their 60s, and they weren't healthy. Most of them couldn't walk a block. And yet not once did they ever question the sustainability of their choices, their lifestyle. They were in their comfort zone. They were in predictable patterns. Now, you look around today, and you look at the people losing their homes. Now, this is what struck me by Michael's farm, a film. And I, I, I'm not saying this is a criticism of Michael, because he's made... A contribution just by raising our awareness. But what I am doing is I'm asking people, you're out of work? Yeah. Do you know who's responsible? Yeah. Corporate America. Is that the same corporate America you're angry with? Whose cheeseburger you're eating from McDonald's? Whose Coca-Cola you're drinking? Whose cigarettes you're smoking? Whose sneakers you're wearing? Whose shorts you're wearing? Whose shirt you're wearing? Whose jacket you're wearing? Whose television programs you're watching? Whose commercials are motivating you to go to a mall and buy what you can't afford? Is that the same corporate America you're angry with, friend? Yeah, that's it. You know, you you can choose another lifestyle. No, I can't. As if I wake up today and I'm a victim. Yes, but look carefully at what you're a victim of. Over to you, Derek.
1: Well, I think that uh, we can certainly make uh, lifestyle changes to help, excuse me, I have to cough. We can certainly make lifestyle changes to um, help uh, lessen our dependence upon these distant corporations. And I think that that's an important thing to do. And I think that there are other um, steps we can take in addition to that that are really crucial.
0: Okay, take your time now. We have uh, nine minutes. Take us through all of the positive changes that will allow us to have a more authentic, a more natural, a simpler, and a better quality of life.
1: Well, one of the difficulties is was really explained by... There's a great book by Robert J. Lifton called The Nazi Doctors. And in this book, he wanted to know how it was that men who had taken a Hippocratic Oath could go work in, in concentration camps and death camps. And what he found was that most of the doctors actually cared very deeply for the health of the inmates. And they would do whatever they could to help improve the inmates' health Everything except the most important thing of all. And so what they would do is they would give them an aspirin to lick if they're in pain, or they would hide them from selection officers if they were sick, or they would put them to bed for a day or two. They would give them an extra scrap of potato. They did everything they could except for question the existence of the death camp itself. And that's a wonderful uh, the book is perhaps it's one of the three or four most important books I've ever read, in part because that's what I see all the time too, that as an environmentalist, as an activist, I see myself and I see so many other people, what we do is we're doing everything we can to protect this or that piece of ground or to protect this or that species whom we love, or to, to do whatever we can except for questioning the foundation, to question the existence itself of this whole death camp culture, this culture that's turning the entire world into a work camp and then a death camp. and I think one of the things we need to do is to separate ourselves from this, and this can be on every level from the smallest to the biggest. It's like a friend of mine called me up and said, how much longer do you think we're going to be in Iraq? I said, we're in Iraq? I thought we are in Northern California. I was like, oh, how much longer do you think our troops are going to be in Iraq? I said, I got troops? And my point is that separating just on that little small scale of saying, it's not me. I'm not Warehouser, I'm not deforesting. I'm not the U.S. government. I didn't invade Iraq. I need to separate myself from that, and make my loyalty with the the victims of this culture and with the natural world. And that's another part. As I was doing this radio interview, it was just horrible. It was this this right-wing, property rights, uber Allah's Bible thumper from San Diego or from Santa Barbara, and he was just horrible. And I was talking about how the salmon are getting hammered and sharks are getting hammered, and and that. Um, 90% of large fish in the ocean are gone. Back to every breast milk, and he was saying the same thing again and again. Which is, you know, that's all fine, Derek, but let's get back in the real world. And I thought I was talking about the real world, but then I realized that for him, the real world is industrial capitalism, and that's the thing that can't be questioned. So when when we see so-called solutions to global warming, what they all have in common is they take industrial capitalism as a given and the natural world is that which must conform to industrial capitalism as opposed to taking the natural world as a given and any social system is that which must conform to the real physical world and it's a stunning conceit and so my point is that one of the first things i think we need to do is to really separate ourselves from it and to say i'm not the problem Um, i'm going to be Part of the solution, and that is to recognize that the problem is the entire system itself. And yes, individual corporations are part of the problem, and individual sociopaths are part of the problem, but the larger problem is the system itself that has been, and to recognize the pattern that when you first think of Iraq as the first thing you think of, plains and hillsides with cedar forests so thick that sunlight never touches the ground. That's how it was prior to the beginnings of this culture. That one of the first written myths of this culture is Gilgamesh deforesting Iraq. And the Arabian Peninsula was oak savanna. Um, the Near East was heavily forested. Greece was heavily forested. North Africa was heavily forested. And to recognize that pattern and to look at what is wrong with this culture that it has been um, destroying land bases and destroying peoples for a long time. So that's one thing. And then the next thing is that. Individual lifestyle choices. I mean, I live pretty simply myself, but that's just because I don't really want a lot more. That's not a political act in and of itself. I mean, nobody thinks that doing compost piles, which I have compost piles, I love them. I love watching stuff decay. That is so fun. But that's not a political act. That's not an overtly political act. Nobody thinks that that having compost piles would have stopped the Nazis and would have stopped apartheid, or that, or that. Individual choices would have helped bring about the um, civil rights, uh, civil rights of the Voting Act, or or Civil Rights Act, or would have made women's suffrage. But one of the things we need to do is we need to begin organize politically. We need to figure out what it is we want, and then we need to start organizing politically and militantly for um, for what it is we want. One of the things I want is I want to live in a world that has more wild salmon every year than the year before. So dams need to come down. There are 2 million dams in the United States. There are 60,000 dams over 13 feet tall, 70,000 dams over 6 1/2 feet tall. If we only took out one of those 70,000 dams a day, it would take 200 years to take out just those 70,000 dams. Salmon don't have that time, and sturgeon don't have that time.
0: Derek, thank you very much for taking this hour. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, me too. Derek, Derek Jensen, my guest. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all.